If you are a parent, you know that being a mom or dad is not for the faint of heart. Parenting is hard work. That's because parenting is first and foremost a heart work. Maybe you've heard it said before, I didn't know I could love someone as much as I do until I had my first child. For many parents, that's way more than a cliche. That's a real heartfelt experience. You can pick up that pretty quickly, can't you? When you meet a new mom or dad for the first time, as their eyes are bloodshot red and they they haven't slept in a few months. Wings, you're looking great today. You realize they they love their children. Any amount of sleep they've missed out on is, is worth it in the long run. It's almost like God has given parents this secret parental sense to know if their child is happy and if something's off in their child's life. An inner walkie-talkie. A gut-feeling storm radar system buried somewhere mysteriously deep down in a parent's heart. God has given parents an unusual ability to detect how their kids are doing. And I think in some ways, God has so built parents that way to give us a microscopic window into his 24-7 care for us. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Parents who are very involved with their children can know when their kids aren't doing well spiritually. And they can know when their kids aren't doing well physically either. Over time, parents who love their children, especially those who spend a lot of time with them, can find their own days, their own weeks, even years drastically altered. Their whole lives turned upside down simply by how their kids are doing. Parenting is also hard work because it involves an untold amount of decisions and deadlines, surprises and scary moments that keep a parent on their toes in how to raise their kids from setting goals to setting expectations to enforcing rules with teaching and correction. To be a biblically faithful parent, you need God's grace and wisdom daily. And I would say this, parents, before you even read a parenting book, before you go to a parenting seminar, you need to know God for yourself. Your kids, more than anything, need to see a mom or dad who fears and loves the Lord their God. That's the greatest thing you can give your children. Now, parenting is more like on-the-job training. You can read all the books you want. You can go to conferences and seminars, but any seasoned parent realizes that many things about parenting you learn as you go. And one of those things is, is you learn not when your kids are not doing well and, and when they're doing okay. But parenting also challenges us along the way as we are 
adapting our parenting styles. Maybe you get older, you think yourselves wiser. And then some of you are more humble enough, you're just too tired to do anything about it. (laughs) Now, I do stand behind this pulpit with a little trepidation this morning as I pose a question specifically to the mothers in the room. Which parenting style, knowingly or unknowingly, would best describe you? Are you a helicopter mom? Or a mom just trying to help? Are you a helicopter mom? Are you a mom just trying to help? This term is certainly not in our Bibles, but it has been coined in our modern times to describe something that's a growing phenomenon. So what is a helicopter mom? Some will say a helicopter mom is an overprotective an overly involved mother who hovers, helicopter-like. Kids, if you start making that noise, run. They hover over their children, over many things, like school, just to see how they're doing. They typically take too much responsibility for their children's experiences and even their successes and failures. In fact, one editor for a media organization found this phenomenon growing so much that it has influenced not just young children in elementary school, not just middle schooler or junior highers, not just high schoolers, not just undergraduates, but even universities and graduate programs alike. She writes, the independence of young American adults just took a great leap backward. It was precipitated by the advance of their parents into new territory, a province once deemed innocuous enough for their offspring to navigate by themselves, getting into graduate school. Now, parents of 25-year-olds are only too eager to call graduate admissions officers and sing the virtues of their children, or show up uninvited for campus visits intended for prospective students. Think of it as college displacement. The relentless violation of parental boundaries is most intense at business and law schools, professional domains where, back in the good old days of, say, 1990, demonstrations of self-motivation and self-reliance by prospective students could be considered a plus. Adults, of course, rationalize their intrusive behavior by pointing out that they're the ones paying the bills. So they are entitled to know what's going on with their adult children. But commander the process? The money rationale rings awfully hollow. Parents have long paid the way for their offspring, usually with the clear aim of seeing that the kiddies acquire the knowledge and skills that support independence. Nowadays, parents counter costs are so great that schooling is an investment as if some magical amount of money trips a switch in their brain that says it's okay for them to rob their kids, even into their mid-twenties, of any degree of self-sufficiency. No shoes were thrown at me. Sermon continues. Whether you are a mom or dad or simply a friend that just wants to help, helping someone you love can be a heavy burden to carry. Helicopter mom, tiger mom, or just a mom or dad trying to help? 
a helicopter friend, or just a friend that's trying to help. When we parent our children, regardless of their age, or when we see a friend or fellow church member who's under a lot of pain and stress and sadness, it's natural for us, especially as Christians, to want to help. Beloved, at what lengths, what depths, what boundaries would you cross to help someone you love? What lengths, what depths, what boundaries do you think Jesus would cross in order to help someone he loves? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 specifically, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 492. Mark chapter 7. Look with me, Mark 7, starting in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. 
If you're taking notes, I have two main points that serve as kind of headings for this portion of Scripture. Point number one, Jesus encounters great faith from an unlikely person in an unlikely place. Jesus encounters great faith from an unlikely person in an unlikely place. That's verses 24 to 30. Point number two, the heavenly touch of Jesus liberates the bondage brought about by the curse of sin. The heavenly touch of Jesus liberates the bondage brought about by the curse of sin. That's verses 31 to 37. Last time together in Mark 7, verses 1 to 23, we witnessed Jesus expose religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy was prevalent in the first century in Israel, and it's prevalent even today in 2022. Not just in California, not just in Massachusetts, but right here in the state of Arkansas. Hypocrisy has been around in religious circles for a very long time. There were men in Israel in Jesus' day who outwardly wore costumes, uh, figuratively speaking, of fearing and loving God. But they were counterfeits on the inside. They were, according to Jesus, spiritual phonies, what we might call today Christian pretenders, spiritually dead and self-deceived church members. And of all people, these hypocrites, yes, Jesus called some people hypocrites, Mark 7, verse 6, and these hypocrites, according to Jesus, were among the highest and most influential spiritual leaders at that time. Uh, Who were these leaders? Uh, They were known as the Pharisees. Specifically, Mark chapter 7, uh, the Pharisees are questioning and accusing Jesus' disciples. And therefore, when you mess with Jesus' disciples, you're also messing with Jesus. That's their rabbi. That's their teacher. They were doing what they were taught. These Pharisees were accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking and rebelling against the tradition of the elders. The tradition that he was referencing here was a practice of ceremonial hand-washing that had been handed down through the generations. However, their man-made tradition had been reinterpreted and even twisted from the original biblical doctrine on the topic. And over time, this Tradition among the elders and the Pharisees was treated higher in authority than the scriptures themselves. So, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond when the heat was being turned up in the kitchen against him? When these religious hypocrites were making this accusation against him and the disciples? Did he bend? Did he compromise? No, Jesus stood firm. But he stood firm not in mere human opinion. He didn't stand firm in mere human feelings. He didn't stand firm on keeping with their traditions or going with pop culture or what was a cool fad 
in Jewish circles. No, he stood firm on the scriptures, the word of God. But instead of engaging himself with a he said, she said debate, you ever had one of those? It's like a ping pong back and forth of we're not getting anywhere in this debate. And Jesus said, I'm going to cut this really short. The most important thing, Pharisees, you need to hear is as it is written. In doing this, Jesus was no way taking Scripture out of context, nor was he adding something new to the Scriptures. Instead, he was accurately interpreting the Scriptures in its historical, redemptive context and applying it perfectly in his context. In that sense, we learn that Jesus embodied what all expository preaching should look like. Preaching that starts from the biblical text and exposes its full meaning to the hearers. The Pharisees here were not mostly concerned about ceremonially clean hands. It was really more of an outward appearance thing. And Jesus saw right through it. He was, Jesus was most concerned with what God is most concerned about, which is a clean and pure heart. A heart that's been changed by God's grace to worship him in spirit. And in truth, unlike the Pharisees who lived a double life, Jesus was not going to be duped. A lot of other people in the community had the wool pulled over their eyes by these men. But Jesus couldn't be deceived. He saw right through them. He saw for what they really were. They were charlatans, hypocrites. After Jesus confronts and corrects them of their whole in their holiness, uh, he reminds them and his disciples where true godliness and true holiness begins. It begins in a changed heart, a heart that genuinely wants to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, Sadly, here we are, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 7, The Pharisees have been opposing and rejecting and resisting and not listening to Jesus. And Jesus leaves them to themselves. He dusts off his feet and says, I will leave you to your spiritual depravity. This morning, we see Jesus take a new direction on his ministry travels. The arrow in his compass begins to focus on a new audience. He doesn't sit around to debate with the Pharisees and talk about what happened a long time ago anymore. He's not trying to stir up a riot and try to prove these hypocrites wrong. He'll do that at the cross. Instead, he dusts off his feet and he goes where the soil is fertile. Where does he go? Well, look with me at verse 24. Mark 7, verse 24 tells us Jesus went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Where is Tyre and Sidon? Now, if you are kind of a Bible nerd, you like to look at maps in the back, I'm one of them. You'll notice that these were coastal cities on the Mediterranean about 35 miles northwest of Capernaum. These two Phoenician cities, which were about 20 miles apart from each other, Sidon being further north, 
this was Gentile territory. This is what modern day is Lebanon, basically. Tyre and Sidon are spoken about in the Old Testament. Uh, Even in the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, uh, it is spoken of as Tyre being a very wealthy place, a very self-sufficient place, and a place where paganism had spread quite widely. Uh, This was Canaanite land. This is where the Jews would say, hey, 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 you, you you can go east, but you can't go northwest. You can go to the Sea of Galilee, but that's Gentile territory. That's where pagans live. That's where the unclean abide. In Mark's gospel, we've actually seen this reference to Tyre and Sidon one other time in the gospel of Mark. So hold your place in Mark 7. Let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Rewind the old VHS tape really quick. Everyone under 25 said, what? Anyway, ask later. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, we see the Pharisees doing what they do best, live self-deceived lives, trying to accuse Jesus of something he didn't do. Verse 6 says they're trying to destroy him, but then we see Jesus, as he does often, if you don't want to hear my teaching, I'm going to turn my back and move to those who will. Look at verses 7 to 12. Mark 3, 7 to 12, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. All right, you can go back to Mark chapter 7. So earlier in Jesus' ministry, apparently Jesus had already met some people from Tyre or Sidon. We're not told of any specific names at that point. They were just kind of faces in the crowd that were flocking to Jesus for help. But, but apparently word had gotten out. People couldn't keep it to themselves of what Jesus had done for their soul, Jesus had done for their children, Jesus had done for their friends or their spouses, the word was getting out about who Jesus was and what he was doing. But what makes Mark 7.24 more unique and what we might even consider risky is that Jesus is now going to Tyre and Sidon. Instead of the crowds coming from Tyre and Sidon to Jesus, Jesus is leaving his ministry headquarters in Capernaum to go to them, to their territory, to their home turf. Have you ever been in a car with someone and you thought they were going to go one way, but they ended up taking a different way? They felt very confident in this different way. They, they tell you it's scenic, it's beautiful, you're going to love it. And then you're just thinking to yourself, speech balloon, yeah, it's just flowery language that you're lost You have no idea where you're going. Well, I don't think that's what's going on here with Jesus. (laughs) He's taking his disciples on a scenic route. He's taking them a route they have not been to together before. But Jesus isn't lost. Mark makes it clear that Jesus goes off the beaten path. And Jesus desires a little privacy too, at least for a time. That's why in verse 24, did you notice, 
And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do this, right? Periodically. He's not a crazy hyper-introvert. He's not trying to keep secrets. But we do see Jesus from time to time slip away from the crowds. Even withdraw from his disciples occasionally. Sometimes it's for an extended private prayer. He's getting his quiet time, his QT. Other times for rest and recovery. At other times, he's trying to avoid an angry mob from killing him before his hour would come. And at other times, Jesus would try to remain hidden in order to prevent the people from trying to make him their revolutionary king and commander against Rome. Jesus knew the exact time that he would eventually go public to fulfill his father's plan of crucifixion and resurrection. But that hour had not come yet. And until that hour, Jesus would often try to stay under the radar as much as he could. Friends, if you're a member here at CCBC, I think there's a good principle there. It is good to learn how to be faithful in serving the Lord under the radar. Anyone can build a platform, websites, podcasts, billboards, posters, television shows. None of those things are necessarily wrong or evil. God can use those things. But I think it's good for a church, especially like ours. It's only been around for about a year and a half now to continue serving in some ways like we're under the radar. It can be a good thing for individual Christians to learn what it means to serve the Lord and learn humility and grow spiritually, not in the limelight, but under the radar. Uh, Friends at CCBC, let's just do the simple things well. Let's preach the word. Let's read the word. Let's sing the word. Let's fellowship around the word. Let's observe the word through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And friends, by God's grace, let's help one another obey the word. Friends, the world might not know that CCBC exists. The River Valley might have all sorts of strange things to say about CCBC. But serving in obscurity sounds a lot more like Jesus to me. Learning how to serve the Lord in obscurity can be also a wonderful test for our motives in serving as well. Now, you can probably imagine that the disciples here are scratching their heads and wondering, Jesus, what are we doing here? This is not the Sea of Galilee. Of all places we could have gone next, Jesus, what are we doing in Tyre? Mark tells us that once again, Jesus planned for some R&R, but he had a sudden halt to that privacy. What interrupted the attempted privacy of Jesus? Well, from a Jewish perspective, an unlikely person from an unlikely place humbly yet boldly approaches Jesus. Look with me in Mark 7, verses 25 
to 30. Mark 7, verses 25 to 30. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Who humbly, yet boldly, comes from an unlikely place to find Jesus? It's a mother. It's a mother looking for help in the only place she knows she can find for her child's pressing need. This mother, who Mark doesn't mention her name, apparently had a little daughter. Did you notice that in verse 25? In the Greek, little daughter is the same word used for Jairus's little daughter in Mark chapter 5. We, we know from Mark chapter 5, Jairus's little daughter was about 12 years old. And so we can probably assume that this woman's daughter was at least 12, but probably even younger. This woman is also a Gentile, a non-Jewish woman who probably had been raised in a pagan or polytheistic religious background. And if it wasn't religious paganism, it was basically an upbringing filled with worldliness and a hedonistic lifestyle. Uh, either way, this woman did not know the God of Israel. She knew in her conscience and she knew from creation he existed. But she didn't have the scriptures. She didn't have the dots connected between creation and conscience. She knew there was a God, but her upbringing was really, well, take your pick of what God you would serve. She didn't have her Old Testament. She certainly didn't have an Old and New Testament like we do today. She didn't have what God's word says on all these wonderful things that we celebrate today. She didn't go to Tuesday night women's Bible study or Wednesday morning women's Bible study. She didn't hear the good news of Jesus Christ that we hear preached every Sunday. She had never even heard of a Messiah. That was until someone in Tyre told her about him. There's a man from Nazareth named Jesus. He heals demonic spirits. Demonic spirits like your little girl has. And I hear he speaks words of eternal life. That's about all she probably knew. Friends, she came to Jesus because she had nowhere else to turn. Jesus wasn't her best option. She had realized that Jesus is her only option. She came to Jesus. Whether or not this woman was a helicopter mom, we're just simply not told. In fact, there's no mentioning in this passage of a dad or a husband in the picture, at least anymore. Was he dead? 
Were they divorced? Did the woman ever marry the father of their child in the first place? Or was this a child born out of wedlock? Was the husband at home caring for the girl? Was the man at home primarily because he didn't want anything to do with Jesus? We simply do not know. But one thing we do know, her little daughter was not doing well. In fact, this Gentile woman recognized that her daughter was overcome by satanic darkness. She was under a spiritual stronghold. Uh, Friends, I know that we live here in the West, and we can naturally and easily gravitate to think that every problem and all problems can be solved in a humanistic way. Living in a material world, Friends, never forget as Christians, we live in a supernatural world. We shouldn't always think the devil's behind every bush and every cold is from the demon cold. That's ridiculous nonsense. But your children live in the same world you do. We do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the prince of the power of darkness. And friends, Satan hates your marriage and he hates your children. Pray for your children daily before they get into the car to go to school. While it's crazy and chaotic, when you're asking everyone to get off their bikes, go-karts, and put the Nerf guns down, huddle them together and pray for your kids. Pray for your adult kids too. Pray for them wherever they're at. They're safer in the arms of Jesus than they are in your arms. He can be trusted. Verse 25, we're told the little girl had an unclean spirit, which really the rest of the passage makes clear she had a demon. This little girl, I mean, it's heartbreaking. This is a little girl. She's barely in grade school. Was being severely oppressed by the kingdom of darkness. She was probably in bondage to fear every night. In bondage to anxiety and depression and despair and hopelessness, wondering, Mom, will I ever get better? Is every day going to be a bad day? Why do I have these thoughts? Why don't I have joy? This mom cared about her little girl. She probably experienced physical symptoms too. She's running to doctor to doctor. Again, no man in the picture, at least, we see here. She's at the end of a rope. Parents, when your child isn't doing well, what do you do? When your child isn't doing well in life, I'll let you fill in the blank on what that may look like. How do you respond? Do you find yourself hovering over them? stalking their every move because you want to control the decisions and outcomes of their future? Are you trying to protect them from every conceivable disappointment and failure they'll have in life? Do you find yourself maybe even out of your own insecurities trying to live through your children? Are you looking for love, affirmation, and peace by filling up emotionally from your child? which you're not getting from your spouse. 
or even more significant, is your whole identity and life wrapped up in your relationship to your child more than your identity being first wrapped up in knowing Jesus? Friends, those are the kind of questions that should stay on our hearts for a very long time. Parents, we, we know when our kids aren't doing well, whether it's spiritually, physically, academically, socially, mentally, athletic, I mean, just pick every description you want. Friends, these are moments that God puts us on the carpet. He tests our hearts to reveal where our identity is first rooted in. Yes, the Lord can use the heartache and suffering and challenges your children face to wake you up to what's down deep in your heart. You see, we should always express concern for our children when they're hurting because that's one way we show what God is like to our kids. It's natural to do that, to care for your little ones as our Heavenly Father cares for us. Friends, how we respond to our children's struggles is also revealing something about what's going on in our own hearts. Not just our children's hearts. It might even be revealing how genuine or how superficial our faith in Jesus has been all along. So what was the Syrophoenician woman putting her identity in? Who did she lean on as her number one priority for help and hope when her daughter wasn't doing well? She's fallen at the feet of Jesus. She's begging Jesus to make her whole. Friends, this woman was Christ-centered before it was cool to say it from the pulpit. Jesus is her focus Locked in, Clydesdale blinders, on her knees, which is a posture of brokenness and humility and desperation. Jesus isn't her homeboy. Jesus isn't her lucky charm. Jesus is her only hope. Again, keep in mind, there's no husband or father around with this woman. She's by herself. She's had to probably meander through a bunch of men. And there's Jewish men standing there, the disciples, remember? And she left a little girl back at home. We're not told how far she had to travel, but we know from verse 30, her daughter was probably bedridden. She couldn't even get out of bed. Again, we're not told on how long she had to travel, but one thing is very clear. This woman had traveled and crossed over multiple cultural, religious, and other stigmas and boundaries that would have been unheard of in her days for a Gentile woman to boldly approach a Jewish rabbi man. But she doesn't care. Enough with being political. Enough with trying to dot your eyes and cross your T's and look pretty in front of people. She wants Jesus. She sees in Jesus, listen, what the hypocritical fairies missed about Jesus. Let me say that again. That's why I spent so much time reviewing last week's sermon. Because Mark is wanting his hearers to see the contrast. 
The Pharisees have the Torah. The Pharisees had witnessed Jesus teach and heal and deliver. And it was the Pharisees who had the hard hearts. It was the Pharisees that were the hypocrites. But this Gentile woman who had nothing to bring to the table, a pagan, all alone, her daughter at the end of her life, this woman sees in Jesus what the hypocrites were too blind to see. In fact, this woman sees in Jesus what his own disciples had a hard time seeing. She sees Jesus in high-definition clarity as the one who can command the unclean spirits and they obey him. She sees in Jesus as the one who can cast out a demon and heal the sick. She sees Jesus as the one who can deliver people from the power of Satan to God. But if you've read this passage this week, or you've simply noticed the passage when I read it, there's an unusual thing Jesus says in response to this woman's request. Julie goes, uh, what you gonna say about that? That's why you guys pay me and pray for me. <laughs> Jesus gives this woman an identity that at first glance seems unusually offensive. Look again at verse 27. Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In verse 27, it's a mini parable. This parallel passage is in Matthew chapter 15 as well, if you want to read the parallel account. And he refers to this woman as a dog. The word here literally means a little puppy or a household pet. Why on earth does Jesus call this hurting and helpless woman a dog? Well, at the time, the Jews typically looked at Gentiles as unclean or godless people. Pagans who were idolatrous and wicked, and they were outside of the covenant community of Israel. Amongst the most self-righteous of the Jews, they looked way down on Gentiles. Those were tracks you don't cross, you might say. That's why on some occasions, the identification of Gentiles as dogs was used to describe the mangy outdoor street animals that ate garbage and rotting carcasses. You can read Exodus 22, verse 31, to see a reference to this in the Old Testament. Even Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 7, verse 6, alluded to dogs and pigs as people who were ungodly and unteachable in spiritual matters. But the question we should be asking is this. What was Jesus trying to convey to this Gentile woman by alluding to her as a dog? Two things we need to see. Number one, the word choice he uses for dog isn't the same word usually used for a mangy, outdoor, untamed beast. He uses a word that's related but different, meaning a household pet or a little puppy. 
a puppy that would have been cared for by the master of the house, who would have been fed crumbs from the children's bread as they ate under the table. Number two, Jesus is using the common vernacular of the day while his Jewish disciples are watching him interact with this Gentile woman. And Jesus is teaching them something about their future mission as his apostles. He's revealing to them and to that woman that many people did not understand the Messiah's mission. You see, elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus made it crystal clear that his first priority was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, verse 24. And that's precisely what Jesus told his disciples to do on their first short-term missions trip. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or maybe you recall the story between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. They're, they're talking about the who and the where of worship. Jesus said in John 4.22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, this was Jesus' first priority in his mission. This was his first priority, to speak the words of life and to reveal himself to the nation he had descended from. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was the greater son of David. He was of the offspring of his Jewish heritage. Uh, friends, if you love cross-references, I mean like better than coffee, cross-references, it just gets you going. I know some of you who you are too. I don't have time to read all these passages, but if you're just like scintillating with, I love cross-references. Here's a few you can jot down. Acts 1, verse 8. Acts 3, 17 to 26. Acts 9, verse 15. Acts 11, verse 18. Acts 13, 44 to 48. Acts 18, 5 to 11. Acts 26, as John read earlier, 18 to 23. Acts 28, 23 to 31. Ladies, I'm pretty sure you are in Romans right now on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. You just got done with Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That's why the most important word in the parable is not the dog. You miss it. We miss it. The most important word in the parable is first. Jesus came to feed the children of Israel the bread of life first. He had descended from their own midst because Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 who came to bring back the lost tribes of Israel and to be the light for the nations. He is Emmanuel, God with us who came to save his people from their sins. But John tells us that his own people did not receive him. John 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
Jesus wasn't caught off guard. Jesus wasn't surprised to see that Syrophoenician woman. Jesus knew from before the foundation of the earth, in eternity past, there were names written in the Lamb's book of life, and her name was on it. You see, before the world even began, God had a plan, the triune God. The Father chose in Christ a people to be a bride for his Son. That one day his Son would die for on a Roman cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to apply the work of redemption to his chosen people, a people made up of Jews and a people made up of Gentiles. Behold the book of Ephesians. Now you'll want to go read it this afternoon. You see, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they were alienated, Ephesians 2 says, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. The Bible says this about Gentiles. Ephesians 2.12, they were people who had no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, that's us. If you were born as a non-Jew, you are thrown in the bucket of Gentiles. Don't be offended by the word dog. Humbly accept it. We were not the ones Jesus first came for. He came to save a people for himself through the nation of Israel to the nations, but we weren't the first priority. We have been grafted in. If you want to know what that means, read Romans 11. Ask me questions about a year from now. I don't have a lot of answers. But here's the point. These Gentile dogs, like us, are going to be included in the master's household as well. Cared for as children. You see, in verse 28, contrary to many of the Jews who Push Jesus away. We see the woman humbly and boldly take no for an answer. She humbly accepts her identity as a dog. And yet she sees herself as highly privileged eating from the master's table. Friends, there's a whole lot worse words than dog in the Bible to describe our sinful condition. How about a vessel reserved for wrath? How about spiritually depraved and God-hating? How about an enemy of God? Friends, whatever label God wants to give us before we know him, we deserve it. And this woman is an example of humility. Friends, this woman is an example of saving faith. This isn't an exception. She looks at Jesus, receives her identity, and says, I want whatever you got because you are the bread of life. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not fundamentally a Jewish religion or its roots. It's not an American religion. It's not a white man's religion. It's not a white woman's religion. This is the message God has given sinners to all peoples to the ends of the earth. As a church body, we better make that message crystal clear. In the pulpit, in the pew, 
In Bible study, in raising our children, we are concerned about our neighbors and we are concerned about the nations. We are concerned about people like us and we are concerned about people who are not like us. Jesus crossed over so many barriers that his disciples couldn't understand. The Pharisees wouldn't have anything to do with because he came to seek and save the lost. Friends, being in Christ is a much greater identity than being a mom. Being in Christ is a much greater identity than being a dad. Being in Christ is a much greater identity than being married or single. To being white or black or something else. Being in Christ is more important than the nation you were born in or the family you grew up in. Friends, our identity in the local church is first and foremost around Jesus Christ. Our mission as a local church is to be concerned about a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to love the same Jesus that we have come to love. Friends at CCBC, we should be deeply committed to discipling relationships. I know it's my hobby horse. I wear it proudly and I'll stand before the Lord and I'll take whatever he says. Meaningful membership matters. Go deep. Know who your members are. Care for the flock. But don't fall into the trap of a holy huddle. Don't fall into the trap of the frozen chosen. We go deep with those who are like-minded so we can look outwardly to those who don't know Jesus. Evangelistic churches don't need programs to make them evangelistic. Give them Jesus Give them the gospel of grace, hearts that are broken, knees that are bent, falling down before Jesus, and you won't have to motivate your people to evangelize. I'm all about the way of the master and other, you know, evangelism explosion. All these different methods are fine to use to train your people. But I have found time and time again, so many people go through these classes. They get their little certificate. They have their little methods and tracks. But they talk about evangelism 20 years ago and not 20 days ago. Somewhere along the way, the flame has gotten cold. The problem is not the evangelism class. The problem is not, I need a Bible study. The problem is our heart needs to be transformed by the grace of God again. You see, friends, this woman saw in Jesus what the Pharisees missed. And Jesus saw in her great faith from an unlikely person in an unlikely place. Friends, this is what God's in the business is doing. Saving a people that you and I think are very unlikely to be saved. We see in Mark 7, Jesus continues in Gentile territory. He goes to that familiar place we've been to before, which would be a much quicker point in the Decapolis, which leads to point number two. The heavenly touch of Jesus liberates the bondage brought about by the curse of sin. You'll see in verse 31, Mark 7, verse 31, you see that word returned. Uh, Jesus returns back to the region of the Decapolis. As you may recall, this is that same region Jesus had visited briefly when he had healed the man that was possessed by a legion of demons. We saw in Mark chapter 5, thousands of demons being thrown into thousands of pig, and whoop, there goes a couple years of bacon over the cliff. 
And then Jesus tells this healed and happy man who wants to get in the boat with the disciples, I'm going with you, Jesus. He looks at that one Christian man. You're going to stay put. This is your mission field. You're going to be the pioneer missionary for King Jesus in the Decapolis. Well, apparently, this man obeyed Jesus. How do we know that? Because when Jesus shows up to the Decapolis, masses and crowds are flocking to Jesus. How did they know who Jesus was? That man. Friends, one obedient Christian can turn a whole community in the right direction if we just obey Jesus. Seems that's what's happening here. These people are coming and they're looking to Jesus. At this time, these family and friends, we're not really sure who they are, they bring a man to Jesus that's deaf and had a speech impediment. In other words, he couldn't hear and his speech was unintelligible. He had difficulty speaking, your translations might say. Friends, think about that for a minute. Think about your whole life never hearing beautiful music played on a harp. Think about your whole life never hearing birds chirping outside your window in the morning. Think about your whole life never enjoying verbal communication without sign language with a dear friend over a cup of coffee. Think about that. Think about that gift, that pleasure of listening and tasting and talking that you and I can often take for granted every day. This man had never had those pleasures. There were probably thousands of life's enjoyments that this man had never even experienced. Many of the ones that you and I experienced just yesterday. Jesus then does something somewhat rare that he doesn't do often in the New Testament, but he does do sometimes. He draws near to the man. He takes him privately, and he physically touches where the handicaps are. Mark says he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. When you and I read this, it might appear kind of odd at first to see Jesus heal the man this way. Uh, But I don't want you to miss the more significant thing that's going on. Jesus is simply still doing what he's been doing for years. He's identifying with the people as a man. He's sighing. The word means groaning when this man comes to him. He identifies as a man living in a fallen world in a fallen body, though Jesus was sinless. And he looks to heaven for mercy on this man. He touched the leper and healed him. He touched this man. He calmed the storm with a word. Jesus said, with a word, be open. Here in Mark 7, Jesus looks up to heaven where he came from to display a power that only God can do. The man's ears instantly opened. He could hear for the first time. Couldn't you imagine his face? To hear his his friends say his name for the first time, his face would have lit up. What's that sound, John? What's that sound, Matthew? 
It's the sound of birds. What is this? We're, we're talking. The man's tongue was released. The word literally means it was liberated. It was set free like chains on his tongue that had kept him from speaking plainly his whole life. The text literally means he spoke clearly for the first time. Friends, never tell God what he can't do with your natural human limitations or handicaps. Never tell God what he can't do with your natural limitations and handicaps. Do you remember the excuses and Moses gave God when God says, you're going to deliver my people out of Egypt? Exodus 4, 10 to 12. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Friends, Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He looked at that man the same way God looked at Moses. I can make a man mute or deaf, and I can make him speak and hear. To my non-Christian friend, have you ever thought, why do some people become Christians and believe all this stuff about Jesus and others do not? You ever ask that question? Why do some, let's just say a vast majority in here, believe Jesus and love him, but others don't? I remember pastoring my first church, Quaco Baptist Church. If you can pronounce it, I'll give you a quarter. Just kidding. I'll run out of money. And a young man named Andrew Krawczewski came with his wife one Sunday. We were a small church. It was painfully obvious if you were a visitor. He was kind and respectful, but he seemed pretty bored most weeks. Then one Sunday, he told me he'd like to get lunch sometime. We got together over some barbecue. and Through the course of a meal, he said this to me. Like, I want to tell you something that's been going on in my life. For months, I've been at church, and to be honest, man, I've been pretty bored. There's the encouragement a pastor needs to hear. I mean, I like your preaching and all, Blake, but I thought to myself for so many weeks, why are people so excited to talk about Jesus? And then one Sunday, I can't even remember what you said. You were preaching in Ephesians chapter 5, and it was like a light bulb came on. I suddenly understood why Christians like talking about Jesus. I think I'm a Christian now. Friends, you think what happened in Mark 7 is supernatural. This room is an example of the supernatural. You love Jesus because he loosened your tongue to confess he is Lord. He opened your blind eyes to behold his glory and your heart leap with joy. You wouldn't be here and worshiping in spirit and truth if he didn't give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a tongue to confess. He is Lord. That's the miracle of the new birth. To the wind with boring testimonies, if you're born again, I don't care what kind of life you 
used to live or didn't live. If you're born again, it's a miracle. Friends, anytime God gets a hold of someone's heart, he loosens their tongue. Doesn't mean they won't have a speech impediment. Doesn't mean they will be hard of listening to at times. Doesn't mean they're going to be an eloquent preacher. But it does mean Jesus gives them something to talk about. We don't need more pastors. We just need faithful Christians to open their mouth and be unashamed of the gospel. Friends, this room is the proof and the pudding that God is still doing miracles today, opening the eyes to the blind, giving the deaf the ability to hear, to hear the voice of their good shepherd. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Friends, Jesus came into this world of suffering and sin, satanic deception and bondage to liberate and deliver us from sin's death grip. He went to the cross, he rose from the dead, and at the appointed time, he is coming back to establish his kingdom and to restore this planet to a new heavens and a new earth, a place where bodies will no longer have handicaps. The deaf will hear the sound of myriads and myriads of angels singing to the top of their lungs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And friends, there's coming a day there will be no more children suffering. No more fathers or mothers hurting. No more deaf and blind, crippled, missing out on thousands and thousands of life's pleasures. And no more barriers between mankind. One day, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will worship together and glorified bodies in spirit and truth. But until then, Jesus is still saving one soul at a time. In verse 36, Jesus did what he previously had to do a few times. He told people, hey, pipe it down. <laughs> Don't tell everybody I'm here. I tried to get some privacy. Interestingly, they, they didn't obey. <laughs> the more Jesus told them to pipe it down, the more they turned the volume up. Friends, we live in the new covenant age. What is the great commission? It doesn't say pipe it down. Jesus didn't say, Don't talk about me. He said, Go and tell. Go and tell the nations. Go and tell your neighbors. Go and tell the people you'll meet this week about Jesus. If you have ears to hear his word, if you have a tongue to speak to tell others about Jesus, you have all you need to be a witness for Christ. What will it take for CCBC to be an evangelistic church that zealously tells others about Jesus in our lives? What will it take for CCBC to be a humble church that gladly eats under the table the children's crumbs? Someone asked the great preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, doctor, as they used to call him, how can I become humble? Notice what the doctor said. A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this and that and, and the other, and you'll be humble. 
I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look to him. You realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humble. What lengths? What depths? What boundaries has Jesus crossed to save and help a sinner like you? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we have been included to eat from your table. We praise you that you are the God of the nations. Lord, we praise you that you even give us the privilege to know something of your fatherly care for us and how we care for our children when they're not doing well. Lord, I pray that each one of us would examine our identities, what we're putting our hope in, that we wouldn't be overly protective and helicopter-like over friends or children or spouses. Lord, our first identity is to be clinging to you, that our children and our loved ones are safer in your arms than they are in ours. Lord, we do pray that you would cause CCBC to be a zealous evangelistic church who cannot keep to themselves what you have done for our souls. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.